0: Well, thank you for those of you who are here. Uh, we are going to continue our study in, uh, in Peter. Uh, this is going to be lesson five and the way I've chosen to do it is maybe a little uh, different. Uh, just seemed to be easier to me because it's difficult to outline. I've chosen to do it through, uh, the seven foundational imperative commands that are found in the scripture. Not all of this is not obviously all the commands, but uh, these are foundational. And we are on uh, imperative command number two, and that is found in chapter one, uh, excuse me, chapter two, verse one. And last week, we looked at the imperative command in great detail. And it tells us, if you look at chapter two, verse one, uh, it said the commandment is lay aside all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy, and all evil speaking, and as newborn babes, crave the milk of the word that you may grow, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is gracious. We looked at this imperative. We looked at what laying aside all malice meant. We talked about what envy was. We talked about uh, evil speaking was a fruit of envy. We talked about hypocrisy and what it was. It was a mask. It was pretentiousness. It was a word that came from the Greek word being act. We talked about the, the laying aside and the putting aside, the, the putting off, if you will, and putting on. And we talked about that in great detail, that the work of the Spirit within us, the progressive work of sanctification. So we talked about that in great detail. And we noticed that, that the center of the command was the phrase desire the pure milk of the Lord. We talked about what craving God's Word meant. And we talked about the, the fact that you crave God's word is a diagnosis of your spiritual condition. Uh, what you have an appetite for is a good indicator of where you are spiritually. So just as a doctor will ask you, uh, how's your appetite been lately? And if your appetite hasn't been good, that's going to be an evidence, perhaps, that there's something going on with you. So just as it is with a physical doctor, so it is with a great physician. Uh, and I would ask you, and I did ask you this last week, uh, do you have a keen appetite for the Word of God? And an appetite for the Word of God uh, will, does and is very vitally necessary, and it contributes to the fact that we are able to lay aside the malice and the hypocrisy and we we'll are be obedient to Him and all that we do. And then we talked about what the phrase, tasting that the Lord is good, if you've tasted, we talked about that in good detail. And then we looked at, uh, as we've been doing, we're looking at the comparative commands first, and then we're looking at the theology behind the commands. And uh, we started with this, and we, we started in verse 14, chapter 1. Let me read this again uh to refresh our minds with this. And then we're going to look at the theology, the doctrine, the because... If you will, of the, of the imperative commands, and we're going to see some, uh, some deep theology today, and uh, bear with me. Uh, look at verse 14, chapter one of Peter's. We look at the theology behind the command to lay aside all malice. Verse 14, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts when you were ignorant, that he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last days for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and some sincere love for the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So this is going to be the theology behind the command. This is how we're able to obey the command. Because of what God has worked in our hearts. And we talked, we started this last week, I think because of the stress of trying to catch up with the uh, Zoom problems. Uh, Maybe I rushed through it a bit. I just want to look at the first point of theology and you see it in verse 14, 15, and 16. And that is, uh, I called it, we are called by the Holy One. We are called by the Holy One. Verse 15, He who called you is holy. And we're not going to really build up what it means to be called, but understand if you remember Terry's teaching in Romans, uh, we are called. It's an, ir- it is an irresistible call. It is a summons by the King of glory and that that call is effectual in our lives. It, it, it creates the effect it in, is intended to. So when God by his grace calls us to his salvation, we come willingly Uh, We don't come grudgingly kicking or screaming, but he changes our wills, he changes our want-tos, he regenerates our minds and our hearts, he creates faith in us, and we come to him, and we do not resist this internal call. So we see that we are called by grace, by God's uh, predestined will, and he calls us into himself, and uh, so we see that we are called by the Holy One. We looked last week at Leviticus, remember this book is written to uh, to save Jews. These Jews, as Paul was apostle to the Jews, he refers many times to the Old Testament. So he, he refers to Leviticus, and we looked at this. I'm not going to look at it again this morning, but we look at Leviticus 11, 44, and 45, and then we look at 19, 2, and 27, 20, verse 7 in Leviticus, as Paul refers to the nation of Israel to save Jews to the initial calling to be holy. And we looked at that calling and we said that the pattern of the calling is, is God himself. It says, uh, uh, as he who called you is holy, you be holy. So we looked at the verses in Hosea. We looked at Habakkuk, where it tells us that his eyes are so pure that he can't look on evil. We looked at the holy other nature of who God the Father is and the Son and the Spirit is. And his ways are higher than our ways. His, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. He is finite. He is infinite. We are finite. Uh, he is morally perfect and pure. There's not one hint of unrighteousness in him. He is holy other than us. He is indescribable in our minds how, how different he is from us. And so he's holy, and so because he's holy, he has called us to himself that we should be holy. Notice that it says in uh, in verse uh, verse 15, you should be holy in all your conduct, not some of your conduct, not what what is easiest for you, what is that's uh, not one of your besetting sins, conduct, but all your conduct. We should be holy and different and separate and morally pure in what we think and how we act and how we respond to one another, how we interact with the world and the world system. We're to be completely different. There shouldn't be any, as it tells us in Ephesians, there shouldn't be any hint of of uh, of wickedness in our lives. There shouldn't be any shame in our lives that we would bring on to our Savior. So the Scripture calls us to holiness. As a matter of fact, it tells us in the book of Hebrews, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. And so we understand that that holiness is 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 one, it's positional, that we have to be placed in holiness. We have to be set apart by the Spirit, and we have to be made holy, and that's a work of Christ on the cross. when When God the Father, he declares us righteous, justification. And then we have to be positionally holy, uh, that's positional. And then we have to be practically holy in that uh, we must be positionally holy first. And then the progressive part is sanctification. Where we cooperate with God's grace and we are obedient to him through his spirit. And we read his word. We pray. And so we see this process working in each one of us. So we're called to be holy. And notice the foundation of holiness is going to be obedience. In verse 14, it says, "as obedient children." So the evidence that we're holy is that we, our lives, are characterized by obedience. Scripture is very clear that uh, if we say we love the Lord and our life isn't characterized by obedience, we are basically liars. Scripture says in First John. So the characteristic uh, of, of 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 holiness is obedience, and it's a lifestyle of obedience. It's a life that is characterized by obedience and faithfulness and uh, the evidence that we are his is that we are consistently obedient and that's a process that he is working out in each one of us and some of us uh, have further to go than others and so you know uh, that God is working in each one of our hearts but his desire is that we be obedient and that uh, the phrase, uh, be holy for I am holy. I think I stopped on this verse 16. Uh, it's a, a very complicated phrase in Greek and I've read lots of commentators on this. I'm not a Greek scholar. So, uh, Terry, if you want to jump in and correct me if I, I think I'm correct in this theology. It's a, uh, it's a future indicative and future indicatives are usually promises. So, in one way, this phrase, be ye holy, for I'm holy, is a promise that you will become more and more holy because I have set you apart. And we see that in many scriptures, but we see it, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, uh, uh, if you'll turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5:17, it's a verse that you're very familiar with, so it's part of this uh, future indicative promise Uh to you be holy, for I am holy. And we see that in second uh, Corinthians 5.17. Uh, it tells us, uh, of course, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away and all things have become new. And that's written in the tense where all things are passing away and all things are becoming new. So it's a process. So it's a promise that if you are in Christ, uh, if you'll turn to Philippians 2.13, another verse that is going to tell us that uh, our sanctification, this process that we grow to be conformed to Christ is a work in which we will be enabled to be and he will eventually accomplish this in us. And we see this in Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you to will and to do his good pleasure. And then 1.6 Philippians says, he who began a good work in you will finish it. And so we see that this, be holy for I am holy. The future indicative is is in one way it's a promise. You will become and more and more holy as time progresses cause practically. And then it's also an imperative where it, uh God's will is that we be holy. And so it is a commandment that we be holy. Uh the desire of the Father is that we be perfect. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew five, forty-eight, be perfect. So Uh, this sanctification process of becoming practically holy is both a promise and it is indeed, it is a command. And so we need to take it very seriously. So, uh, 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 we are to be holy to the extent that we have been made holy by God is one of my commentators said. He's the source of the holiness. And this holiness distinguishes us from lost people. Uh, remember we read this last time that, uh, uh, uh the loss, the characteristic of the loss, is found in several places, but ephesians two two tells us uh, that uh, uh, that those who are not in Christ, their life is characterized, they are called sons of disobedience. You see that in Ephesians two two This is the way we used to be. We once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. The Spirit who now works in the sons of obedience, and that's the way we used to conduct ourselves. So we're called out to be holy and to be separate. Uh, So that's one of the theological reasons and the in the answers to this imperative to lay aside all malice and hypocrisy and evil speaking. So uh, we are holy. Second thing that I want us to see in this. Uh, anybody have any comment about that? Just unmute yourself. I'd love to hear any response you have about being holy, the practical and the, and the uh, positional aspect of it. Uh, feel free to open up your mic and, and, and share with us if you'd like. Uh, the next thing I want us to see is uh, the theology behind this commandment. Is uh, is point two? Is we're going to be judged, and we see that in verse seventeen. If you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here and in fear. Uh, We as believers will be judged. There is a difference between the judgment of the believer and the unbeliever. The unbeliever, obviously, is going to be judged at the great white throne judgment where he or she, him or her, male, female, uh, boy or girl, old man, young man, will stand before God. The books are going to be opened. And the thing with the great white throne judgment is you're going to be based on all of your works, all of your motives, all of your thoughts, every evil, everything you've ever done will be opened up and be read before you. And you're going to be judged according to what you have done in this earth. And you will have no defense attorney. You will have no blood to cover your guilt. You will have no one to declare you righteous. and You will stand on your own merits. And the standard of the judgment is perfection. So one thing, one sin, one thought, and you will be guilty because your sin is not covered under the blood of Christ and you haven't been redeemed as we're going to talk about in a minute. That is one judgment. It occurs after the thousand-year reign of Christ, after the second resurrection, Men and women will be raised to be judged by Christ at the great white throne judgment in the Revelation chapter 20. We will be judged, at, and it is, our judgment is called the Bema Seat Judgment, and it is a reward judgment where we will be judged by our deeds, just like the unbeliever, but we will be de- judged according to the motivation for our deeds, and we will not be condemned. This is not going to be a penal judgment for us. Uh, the, the, the lost judgment is penal. Uh, but our judgment is not penal. Our, we will not be condemned at our judgment. In a sense, it will be a penal judgment. Our condemnation has been taken away by Christ. And Romans 8, 1 tells us there's no condemnation to us who are in Christ Jesus. Those have been called according to the purposes, right? So, Our our judgment is not penal. We're not going to be judged according to our sins. Christ has done that. He's absolved us of our guilt, and he's taken the wrath away. So we're not judged penally, but we are judged motivationally, and our deeds are examined. One of my commentators said, our relationship with the Father does not preclude him from discerning in our lives that which is inconsistent with holy living. So we are going to be examined and we're going to see, he is going to, uh, reveal to us and judge us for, for instance, the gifts we've been given. All of us have a gift from the spirit. All of us have been given a specific gift and we're going to be judged according to, for one instance, how we use the gifts God has given us. If I've been given a gift of teaching, I'm going to be, I'm going to be examined uh, by how well and how I was motivated to teach and how I used the gifts he's given me. If you've been given mercy, if you've been given helps, if you've been given uh, uh, hospitality, whatever gift you've been given, you're going to be judged according to how well you uh, were faithful to the gift that God has given you. So just as a note, of, we're always to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. I just uh, encourage you to know your gifting, and to, and to see if you've been faithful to that gifting, if, you're, if, you're, if your life is characterized by motivation out of the love of God and loving Christ and loving one another, that's the motivation. And so we see that in, in many texts in scripture, but if you will turn to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, Paul talks about this abemacy uh, judgment in 1 Corinthians 3 and then in 2 Corinthians 5.10. Let's look at the First Corinthians uh, chapter 3, uh, 11 through fifteen. First Corinthians chapter three, uh, verses eleven through fifteen. For no other foundation can anyone lay than which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. Each one's work will become clear for the day. That's the beam of day judgment. We'll declare it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on endures, he'll receive a reward. Anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, so is yet through fire. So it's not a penal judgment, it's a reward judgment. And we see that very verbiage again in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verse 10. Uh, it says, uh, For we all must appear before the Bema seat, judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in his body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men but we are well-known to God, and I trust are well-known to you in your conscience. So there is a, a time that we're going to be examined. Our works will be examined. Notice that it says that God, uh, without partiality, judges. Literally, that means that uh, the judgment is not based upon our ethnicity. It's not based upon... Uh, whether we're male or female, it's not based upon our economic status. Uh, it's not based upon whether we are a child or whether we're an adult. Uh, but he judges without partiality. Scripture tells us that he's not a respecter of persons. So it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or if you're a Gentile. Uh, you are judged uh, not by outward appearances, but you are judged by your heart remember when the nation of Israel uh, they were they rejected God's uh, call for it to be a, 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 a theologically based uh, nation uh, that God was going to be their king and they rejected that and they wanted their own king and uh, they picked Saul who was tall and handsome and big and they picked him because of outward experience outward parents and then God rejected Saul. And then, uh, David was named king and, uh, and, uh, and, and Samuel said that God doesn't choose according to the outward appearance, but he looks at the heart. And so that's how God, when it says he judges without impartiality, money doesn't bribe him. It doesn't matter if your daddy and your grandpa were preachers. Uh, it doesn't matter. We all individually stand before him based upon the merits of Christ. And so he judges us impartially. He looks at our heart, and notice that he says each man's work, uh, all of us are going to be judged individually, not what we did as Grace Bible Churchers, but uh, what we do individually as members of Grace Bible, as we are individual members of individual responsibilities and abilities. And so uh, another commentator says God doesn't abrogate equity or justice in his dealings with any man, regenerate or unregenerate. So we are going to stand before him. So uh, obviously, and then it says, uh, uh, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. That word stay just reminds us that we're pilgrims passing through. This is temporary place, 70, 80 years, whatever it is. It's temporary. And then he says to do it in fear, and that word fear just re- really is a reverential awe of God. Uh, we, as His children, uh, we should have an awe toward who He is. We should honor Him in our minds, and our hearts, and our relationships should always have this this tension of, of of love and awe and reverence for who He is. We should never take Him. Uh, For granted, we never presume upon his goodness, but we should always have a reverential awe of who he is. We should always have in the back of our minds a fear of displeasing him in our conduct. We should always have this uh, concern that we are shaming our Savior, and so we should have an awe of him. And, and, And Jesus says you should fear him who can kill the body and the soul in hell. Uh, so if you just want to know what, what true fear is, uh, is, is, is he who holds the keys of sin and death is able to subject, uh, an unbeliever to eternity without him. So we should have an awe of him and a fear of him, uh, in the respect that he's our father and we have this relationship with him. So anybody have any questions about, uh, uh we're going to be judged and you know, about holiness. Anybody want to speak? Just unmute. I'd love to hear any response you might have. These are, these are two of the, uh, of the, uh, theological points, uh, that I wanted to mention about this imperative. Any comments about these, uh, thoughts so far? And then we're going to get into something very, very sublime. Anybody have anything to offer towards this yet? With that said, or not said, uh, uh-huh, uh, let's look at this next thought. And it is found in verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, but verse 19, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. I want to talk about this concept of redemption. It's a sublime concept. It's a concept that runs from Genesis to Revelation. It is, a, it is a concept that is one of the most uh, uh, hard-to-fathom concepts in all of Scripture. It's a truth that comforts our hearts. And in it, we see Christ's work on our behalf. The word uh, redeemed has a couple of words in Hebrews and a couple of words in Greek. Uh, in the uh, Old Testament, the word is uh Pada, uh, P-A-D-A, I don't know how it's, how it's pronounced, I don't want to butcher it, but in Hebrew it's P-A-D-A, and the word literally means to, uh, to buy it back, uh, the word means to uh, purchase a person from slavery to freedom or new ownership, it's a word that uh, uh, do- donates divine salvation from oppression, from death, and from sin, And always with the concept of redemption is the means of redemption. And and the means of redemption is always a price. And the price is the blood of Jesus Christ. He's the ransom. His ransom expiates our sins. And so redemption, the thought in the Old Testament is similar to the new, but it is being bought back from the slave block of sin. And you see three primary examples in the Old Testament. If you'll let me go back to it, Peter is writing to the to the Jews. They would be familiar with it. And so uh, it's well for us to look at it. First thing we see, of course, uh, we remember is the Exodus. You remember the nation of Israel has been in uh, slavery to the nation of Egypt for 400 plus years. And they are in hard oppression and they are in servitude, and they are in bondage to the Egyptians as ordained by God. It was uh, foreordained, of course, and of course we knew it happened. But this literal slavery is a picture of us in our sin, prisoners and sin, slaves to sin. And we, just like the nation of Israel, was literally imprisoned and enslaved, so we, too, used to be literally imprisoned and enslaved in our sins, right, before Christ. And so we see, if you look with me in Exodus, I'm not going to read all the account, obviously, just a few verses. Uh, we see this concept of redemption, and we see it uh, uh, in three examples, and I'm going to use three. There are many others, but uh, for time I won't look at them. But look at Exodus 3. Uh, as we see God's calling Moses at the burning in the bush, burning bush. Then we see God speaking to Moses as we see this concept of redemption. seven uh, Exodus. The Lord said, I've seen the oppression of my people in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sorrows, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up to a good and large land. So we see this concept of redemption, that the nation of Israel is oppressed, they're in slavery, and God is going to deliver them out of their hands and buy them back from this bondage and take them to a land of milk and honey, land of Canaan. We see this again in chapter 6. Uh, uh, God speaking again to Moses. Look at 6. Five in Exodus. I've heard the groaning of my of uh, of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I've remembered my covenant. And then he says, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from the burden of the Egyptians, and I will rescue you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with outstretched arms. So we see this picture of redemption, that the Father is going to redeem his people from oppression and from our sin and from who we were before Christ. And he's going to deliver us from this to something else. So just as a nation of Israel, they're delivered from slavery to the promised land. We are delivered from our sins. It's a beautiful principle of repentance. We are brought from where we were and we are brought to. We are saved for a reason and that's to glorify him do works ordained, share his gospel, grow in grace, all these things that we're saved from something to something. And so that's what repentance is. And so this is what redemption is. And we see this. And then uh, if you'll let me read one more verse, uh, Exodus 12, 13, the means of this redemption, of course, is blood. And so that's where the Passover is instituted. As the nation of Israel is called to take an unblemished lamb called a paschal lamb. This lamb has to be sacrificed. It has to be put over the doorpost of the home. And so when the last plague comes, the death angel, when they, when the death angel sees the blood, the blood is the, is the ransom price. It is the means by which Christ redeems his people. This is the Passover. This, of course, points to future when Christ is going to be the type. He's going to fulfill this. He's going to be the sacrificial lamb, unblemished lamb. And when God looks at the blood of His Son, the death angel metaphorically passes over us, and we are redeemed and saved. So we see this typing in this example of redemption. There's also another example of redemption. And the word is Gaul, G-A-A-L, and that's also a word in the Hebrew, and it's a little different. Uh, and it's, uh, and it's the, the, the thought of a kinsman redeemer. And the nation of Israel, they had peculiar rules, which we are not familiar with, and some ways they did things, but it would be found in the book of Ruth, uh, the after judges, Joshua judges Ruth, and, uh, and in Ruth, we see this beautiful picture of of, uh, of Ruth, who is a Moabitess, uh, she is of the offspring of Lot and his sexual immorality with his daughters, and she is a, a part of a cursed nation. And we see God in his mercy, uh, transferring Ruth from, from, uh, from her hopelessness and lost condition. He's going to redeem her and she's going to be a part of the progeny of about uh, David and then Christ in the future, we see this work of redemption. It's called kinsman redeemer, and Boaz is a distant relative. And according to this culture, uh, you had the opportunity to redeem or buy back a relative's land, or uh, uh, or d- continue to allow them to develop a progeny with children and descendants. And we see this this. Uh, and this concept of kinsman redeemer is 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 more of a justice, and it's it's providing justice, a purchase of a relative from slavery. And we see Boaz, uh, we see in chapter four of Ruth. I'm not going to read it, but for time's sake, Boaz uh, becomes Ruth's kinsman redeemer, and he redeems her, uh, and he takes her to be his wife. And one of my commentators said, Christ took our nature. So he could become our nearest kin and brother. And so just as Ruth became, I mean, Boaz became kinsman redeemer to Ruth. So Christ became our kindred redeemer. He became like man to represent us. And then he became our brother when he died for us and redeemed us. So we see these two examples. Then my favorite example. And those of you who've been with me for the last five years, uh, remember five years ago, we did the book of Hosea. And Hosea is the most beautiful picture of redemption in all of Scripture, the Old Testament. And in it, Hosea, who is a prophet, is called to take Gomer, a prostitute, to be his wife. And this is God. In this instance, Hosea represents God the Father. Gomer represents the nation of Israel. Her harlotry represents her sins, her backslidden condition, uh, represents her wickedness and her abandonment of God, uh, as is it, as pictured in Gomer and Hosea, she's un, unfaithful to Hosea. And God tells Hosea to do something miraculous. And this is something, a picture of what God does to the nation of Israel. This is a picture of what he does to us in the New Testament. We are the body of Christ. Look at Hosea 3, will you? Real quickly, humor me. If we look at this uh, beautiful picture of redemption in the Old Testament. Hosea chapter 3. And I'm going to try to say this without getting too emotional. The Lord said to me, chapter 3, verse 1, the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery. So God takes us where we are in our sin, and he and He tells Hosea, go, go buy her back. And he says, just like the love of the Lord for the children. A verse 2, so I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and 15 and one half homer of barley. So God tells Hosea, you go buy back Gomer. You redeem Gomer. Picture Gomer. She's a prostitute. She's used up her life. She's used up. She looks like she's lived a hard, difficult life. She's on a literal block. The auctioneer calls out and, and, and Hosea says, I'll buy her back. And he buys her back. For 30 shekels of silver. He buys her for 15 shekels of silver. And then the produce that he uses, half of it is silver, half of it is produce. And we see this beautiful picture of redemption that Hosea buys Gomer, the the, the, the unfaithful wife, back to himself. And notice the price he pays. The price is 30 shekels. That is the price of the slave. Uh, in Exodus, uh, I'm not going it, to, it's in Exodus 21:32. If you owned cattle, and if your cattle gored a slave and killed a slave, then to make that right, you had to pay 30 shekels of silver. That was the price of a slave. And so what this is telling us in figurative and beautiful language is that Hosea is going to buy back his wife, Gomer, for the price of a slave. This is a picture of redemption. Guess what folks, in Zechariah as we talk, the prophecy of Judas Iscariot Judas Iscariot is prophesied if you'll look at Zechariah 11-12 I'm going to give you time to find that one It's an obscure minor prophet, we've done it Uh, If you remember this, this is a prophecy, the striking of the shepherds this is a prophecy of Judas Iscariot, 1112. Uh, 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 then I said to him, if it is agreeable to you, give me my wages. And if not, so they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. So we understand in this chain of redemption that just as Hosea paid 30 shekels of silver to buy back his wife and redemptive work, So Judas Iscariot sells out Jesus for 30 shekels of silver, right? And so we see that fulfilled in Matthew. He portrays Jesus, and he gives as the price of this betrayal, as this price of selling out a slave, 30 shekels of silver. You see this chain of redemption and ransom in the picture of the Old Testament fulfilling Christ. And so we see that Christ... Who knew no sin, becomes sin for us. He's the ray, he pays the ransom of his blood, and he's a slave, and he buys us. And that's a beautiful picture in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, any comments on that? Surely someone's got to say hallelujah to that or something. We see the picture of redemption in the Old Testament, beautiful picture of Christ redeeming his people. Uh, and then in the New Testament, Uh, Similar verbiage, Uh, the one word in the Greek is agorazo, A-G-O-R-A-Z-O, if you're writing these things down, A-G-O-R-A-Z-O. And it is a word that means to set slave free through purchase. And uh, and we see this, uh, like I said, this is from Genesis to the Revelation, and you see us in heaven, we're standing before God after we've been raptured, Uh, We are standing before our king in glory, and uh, you hear that it's the song of the redeemed. If you'll look with me to to the Revelation uh, chapter 5, look what we say as we bow before our Savior and we worship him. Uh, we, we, We sing this new song to our king and our Savior in glory when we're raptured. To glory. Look at verse five, chapter five, verse nine. And they, that's us, uh, the 24 elders, that's going to be representative of the church and the, and the, and the, the saved of Israel. And we sing a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals. You were slain and you have redeemed us to God by your blood. So we hear the redeemed. Praising Jesus for His redemptive work, for the ransom He paid, His blood. And then, if you want to look at another verse while we're here in the Revelation, look at Revelation 14. Uh, 14. This is a this is a song of those who uh, uh, who are uh, have been saved. I think these are going to be the Jews who have been saved during the tribulation. This is their song also. Uh, Chapter 14, verse 3, they sang as it were a new song before the throne that no one can learn except the 144,000, that's another lesson, who were redeemed from the earth, okay? And then it says, these were redeemed from among men, first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And so we see this picture of saved uh, during the tribulation period. They were redeemed, of course, by the blood of Christ, also. So, we see this picture of redemption that flows from Genesis to the Revelation, and it's uh, and uh, so we see that we are redeemed. So, let's look at uh, uh, let's look at verse 19. Verse 19 the ransom, but we were. We were redeemed, verse 19, but we were redeemed not with corruptible things. Uh, some things that men think redeem them in this world are corruptible. Uh, men think that money will redeem them. Men think their works will redeem them. Men think their uh, history of, of heritage, their ethnicity will redeem them. These are corruptible things that cannot redeem uh, we're not redeemed by anything but the blood of Christ. So uh, so instead of being redeemed by corruptible things, which men uh, may inherently think they can be redeemed by, Scripture's very clear in verse 19. You are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish and without spot. So we see this redemption is accomplished through the means of the precious blood of Jesus. And uh, this this word, precious blood, the word precious, uh, it's it's a fantastic word in the Greek. It's tinio, T-I-M-I-O. When it says we are redeemed with the precious, the precious blood of Jesus, that word means this blood has an inestimable, that's a hard word for me to say, inestimable value. It is costly. And it is, it is, it is an unfathomable, costly gift. And it is a precious gift. And the value is not, we are not able to understand the value ultimately because of our limited minds. That's why scripture tells us. in ages to come, he's going to show us his riches in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2 7. So this precious blood's value is going to become more valuable to us as we go from here throughout eternity. We are going to realize the preciousness blood of Jesus for all of eternity. We're going to worship him in honor. Friends, friends, comprehend this truth, how valuable the blood of Christ is. We know the principle that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And we know that the life is the lifeblood, so Jesus gave that precious, incorrupt, sinless blood that had no blemish, no stain, as he gave it as a ransom price to buy us back from the slave block of sin, and we know that uh, he made him second corinthians five twenty one who knew no sin to become sin for us, we may become the righteousness of God in Christ, so we see this perfect picture of substitution by the means of the bloodshed of Christ that we are redeemed. And so we see this uh, in this verse, and I just want you to chew on the value of that precious blood that was given as a ransom uh, to many. And uh, we see that as Peter uh, uh, camps on this. And we see this uh, in verse 20 as we go along, he was but the precious blood of Jesus as a lamb without blemish. We've talked about that, the perfect sinless, the necessity of sinlessness. If Christ would have had sin, then, of course, we would still be in our sin because we would have, we would have a sacrifice that was tainted with sin, and we would still be in our sin. So we see the, the necessity of the perfect sinlessness of Christ. But look at this uh, in verse 20. I love this. Uh, he indeed, this is Christ, was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Uh, the plan of redemption is not plan B. Uh, the plan of redemption, uh, it wasn't dreamt up after the fact. Uh, God the Father, uh, wasn't, uh, surprised by. He wasn't shocked by. He wasn't taken off guard by the sin of Adam and Eve. Okay, before the foundation of the world, the Triune God put together a plan of salvation, and uh, that plan of salvation included, by necessity, the death of the Testator of Jesus Christ, for the redemption. And that plan, that salvation was planned out. I like uh, uh, one commentator said it wasn't a last-minute remedy. That God had to devise for an evil he never dreamt about, but it was ordained before the foundation of the world. Jesus agreed to take on humanity, become fully God and fu- become fully man and fully God, and to carry out the work of redemption. So uh, he was indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Chew on that a while. He was, the word manifest, he was revealed at his incarnation for you. He became flesh to represent you so that he could be your high priest. He could be your substitute. He identifies with you as man. He's touched with your feelings and infirmities. He's tempted in all points as you are without without sin. And so he becomes man. He takes on our nature. And so in, notice the beauty of this. He's manifest for you personally came to die for you to represent you so you can come to him with boldness. The scripture says with with full assurance of faith and confidence to seek help in time of need. So that's what our Savior did for us. If that don't add a little spark to you this morning, I don't know. I just will have to talk about that later. But anyway, that's. Uh, the ransom price was paid. Board nation accomplished. And then to look at verse uh, 21. Very important verse. A lot of packed theology. As we see this, uh, uh, who through him, if you want to uh, just put words in here, who through Jesus believed in God, who God the Father raised from the dead and gave him Jesus' glory so that your faith and hope are in God. A lot of theology here. In verse 21, first of all, we see who through him. Jesus is the only way to God. Uh, He's the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. And so it says, when Peter says, who through him believe in God, this is a very deep theological statement. And it's what separates Christianity from the other faiths. Other faiths, there's a religion, and it's their approach to God. Christianity says this is the approach. And the approach is through Jesus Christ. There's no other way uh, to get in through the door. You have to go through the door of the sheep, and that's Jesus Christ, and He's the way. And any other way uh, is the wrong way. But 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 uh, Peter says, "Who through Jesus believe in God?" Uh, we believe in God through Jesus Christ. Is the only way to Jesus, and uh, and I love what. Uh, what it says, one of my commentaries said commentators said it said uh, 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 where is the where is the wording? What do I have here? Uh, I don't have it written down here. That's pretty common for me. Anyway, it was a good it was a good, quote. it was a good quote. Through Christ we come to God and then we see who God raised him from the dead. We see uh, the working of the, the Godhead and the resurrection of Christ. Remember, we talked in John, Christ rises, raises himself from the dead. And here we see God raises him from the dead. And we see when God raises his son from the dead, that God accepts Christ's perfect sacrifice on our behalf. The righteous substitution occurs. He accepts the perfect blood sacrifice of his son. And that sacrifice propitiates his wrath against our sins. As God pours out his wrath on his son, he accepts this sacrifice of his son as he's forsaken his son. He accepts the sacrifice, and his wrath is appeased. Justice is satisfied. Redemption is accomplished. We are adopted into his family, and all the work of salvation is accomplished. So we see when it says he raised him from the dead— And then look at this beautiful phrase. After God the Father raises his son from the dead, he gives him glory. Now this is where I had my quote. I was just a little backwards. Through the resurrection and glorification, Jesus receives the power to give believers faith in the Holy Spirit. The same power that enables us to believe is the power which raised Christ from the dead. Our faith must not only be in Christ, but by and through Christ. So I love this. As we sum up this verse, that faith is not only in Christ, but it is by Christ and through Christ. And we see this phrase, uh, the Father gave him glory. Uh, this is a beautiful fulfillment of Daniel. We've done Daniel. Remember that when Daniel sees this vision of the ancient of days in, in Daniel 7, And we see the Ancient of Days seated in his white hair on the throne. And then we see Jesus Christ, the Son of God, come to the Father. And then the Ancient of Days gives his Son dominion and lordship over the whole planet. And that's fulfilled. Remember what Jesus said after, before he ascended, he says, All authority has been given unto me. And so we see this beautiful picture because of the resurrection and the death and the, and, and the salvation of Christ, then this power and authority is transferred to the Son, and He is, has dominion over all things. And, and uh, it's just a beautiful picture of our salvation accomplished, and we see the uh, work of God in our salvation. Whew. It's a lot to say. Uh, it is the theology behind the command to obey. And then lastly. If that's not enough, we see this last piece of theology, and it's uh, we want if you're writing this down, we've got uh, we've got uh redemption, we've got we're gonna be judged, we've got be holy. Uh and now we see the enduring word, all part of a picture, complete uh work of salvation that God works in us, and this is the means he uses. Uh, if you're writing this down, it's the enduring word, and we see this in 22 and the following. The enduring word, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, so we see the work of the Word in accomplishing our salvation. That word purifies uh, is a, is, a, is a Greek word. It comes from the basic word hagios to be set apart. It's haganizo, and it word and it means to be ceremonially cleansed. So this is telling us that we are cleansed. We are positioned in Christ. Uh, uh, and the means is it is through the word. Uh, it says, since you have purified your souls and obeying the truth. And so we see that the word has this work of purification in our hearts. And, uh, and we see this in uh, many, many verses. Uh, and, and the concept is, uh, the verb, the, the verb purifies, I'm using a lot of Greek today, I really don't know it, but uh, uh, it's a perfect participle. And it really means lasting result of a past action. So the word of God purifies us. The past action is a purification of our souls, and because our souls are purified, it lasts. And it results in the purifying of our soul, this progressive work of salvation. Uh, Psalm 19 is just filled with with the quality of the word and the effect of the word. If you just want to look real quickly at Psalm, as I've got uh, 10 minutes, so don't get fancy. Uh, Psalm 19, we see the work of the word as it dovetails this verse uh, that the word purifies our soul. Look at uh, Psalm 19, verse 7. These are all synonyms of the word, uh, similar words, just sort of different aspects of it. The law of the Lord is perfect. That's the quality. And what does it do? It converts the soul. The uh, same thing as purifies the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. That's the quality. And what does it do? It makes wise the simple. The, statis- the statutes of the Lord are right. That's the quality of the word. And what does it do? It rejoices our heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. There's that word again, uh, in, in the purity of the word, the quality of the word enlightens our eyes. And so we see the fear of the Lord is clean. It endures forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous and we're to desire them and we are rewarded by our obedience to them. And so, uh, we see that in verse uh, 11 in keeping them, your servant has given great reward. So we see this. This enduring word, and we see its effects that it uh, has this effect of purifying us uh, and so we see its work in us, so we see that uh, second thing we see uh, from this enduring word uh, is that it's through the spirit the spirit energizes the word the word is given life by the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit uh, works through the word, the word changes us. The word conforms us to the image of Jesus. And so he takes the word. And this phrase, uh, the word here, is uh, uh, in verse uh, 23. We've been born again, not a corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word. That verb is the written word and it is the, uh, it's the written word that is energized, uh, by the spirit. It converts our souls. It purifies our souls. It changes us and makes us into the image of, of, of his son, Jesus Christ. So we see that word, it purifies and it is through the spirit and the results, look at the beautiful results of this, the, the, The purifying of our soul through the Spirit, the means of which is the Word, creates this in us. Look what it does. And this is an examination principle. It says, through the Spirit, insincere love one another out of a pure heart. So, this Word, as it works in us, one of the ramifications of the Word working in us is that we love one another. We love the brethren. And we love one another fervently with a pure heart. We don't love each other hypocritically. We don't love each other as a pretension. But it is we love each other because we are related, because our relationship to the Father is we've been purified by this word and converted by this word. And so we see this work in our lives. And then it says in verse 23, we're born again. That's a work of the Spirit. You put regeneration right there. We're regenerated by the Spirit through the Word. And then what he does is beautiful. He shows the sharp contrast between the enduring Word, the work of God, the work of the Spirit in in our lives. And it contrasts that with the finiteness of man. Notice what he says here. He says, we're born again, verse 23, not from corruptible seed, which is human procreation. Human procreation results in sin. We're all born sinners and that's what human procreation uh, is, a corruptible seed. But, the incorru- but it says, but incorruptible. The seed, if you remember the parable, the sower and the seed, the seed is the word of God. So the word of God is pure and it is not corrupted whatsoever. It is incorruptible. So we see this contrast between human procreation and the results of it. And we see this, we see the results of of, of the incorruptible seed, which is a faith, which is a Christ. And we've noticed that there's a stark difference between uh, procreation of corruptible seed and incorruptible seed. And then it says, through the word which lives and abides forever. And then it further contrasts this, all flesh is as grass and the glory of man is a flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord abides forever. So we see the contrast between man that fades just like a flower fades uh, as the grass fades and we're no more. But this this incorruptible seed that is from God abides forever and it affects forever, it changes forever. And then he concludes with this. Now this is the word... Which was by the gospel and preached to you. And in this context, the word is not the written word, but is the spoken word, the Rema word, the R-H-E-M-A word. And uh and, and, and Peter is saying this is the spoken word, which is what the gospel is. Uh, as you and then it tells us in Romans, how are they gonna hear without a preacher? So God has ordained that preachers that we as lay people, we expound the word and we speak forth the word. This spoken word is the gospel that changes life. And so Peter ends with this spoken word that is the gospel and it is preached. And this spoken word preached is what God uses through the Spirit to convert us and to change us and to purify us. Hi, I need a drink. I need a glass of water. What do you think? This is, I'm going to unmute everybody, we've got a few minutes, but this is the theology behind the command to lay aside the malice because we have been redeemed, because we're to be holy. And so I just want you to chew on that this week, that you were redeemed by the blood of Christ, and we're to be holy in all of our living and everything we do. If anything to offer or add to this, Y'all are being awful quiet. Next week, we're going to do, by the Lord's willing and payment, command number three. I really want you to read this if you could. Uh, If you would start in uh, chapter 2, verse 13, and read through three. We're going to talk about this wonderful topic of submission. A very difficult topic. We're going to talk about submitting to one another. Committing to our, uh, uh, to our government. We're going to be talking about submission to our employees and employers. And, uh, uh, we need much prayer to, uh, be able to be obedient to this command. And then we're going to look at the reasons, uh, because we're chosen and we're a royal priesthood, brothers. And so we're going to see that, uh, the theology behind the obedience to government is not based upon if we agree to the government or agree with the government, but it's because of who we are in Christ, and it glorifies him. And uh, we'll talk about that in great detail next week. So if you would, read that, and uh, we will move on from there. Appreciate you guys. You're awful quiet. Anything to say?
1: Uh, Don? Yes? Uh, you know, when we think of the word, one thing really comes to mind to me because we watch MacArthur a lot, and he has this uh, guy that is working at the college now from China. Uh huh. And most of you have probably seen this if you watch MacArthur, but it's it's just so important. I think when we think of the word, because we as Americans take a lot of things for granted, and probably the word is one of them. Until you know we get something that's real specific to to talk about how important the word is to our lives. But these guys had to sit and watch them, the Chinese, burn up all of their Bibles. And they would try to have, you know, home Bible study. And they would break in, take the Bibles, put them in a pile and burn them up. And they put this one guy's father in prison just for studying the Bible. And he got a Bible somewhere after they took them all away. And he got caught with it again. And they put it in prison. And it's, you know, when you think of the word, our whole life is built around the word. And we use it for everything from a knowledge to a crutch to being able to commune with God. But when we take it for granted like we do, I mean, sometimes you just got to sit back and think about how fortunate we are to do that compared to other parts of the world where they literally break into your home and take the word away from you. Yes. I mean, just imagine those people's feeling, you know, they don't have the word anymore to lean on. I mean, I know the Holy Spirit is with them and he, he gives them strength and knowledge, but we, we just take that for granted. I, I think so. I do. I'll just say I do. I think So you just have to have a lesson once in a while to get the renewed faith and appreciation. I think for That's right access right. to the word. A free right. access to the Word.
0: That's right. Thank you. Good. Any other comments? Yeah, our faith is not based upon, uh, it is emotional, our faith, but our faith is based upon concrete, uh, uh, the concreteness of God's Word, right? That's the foundation. And so when our emotions cause us to react in certain ways, we can rely upon what the Word says. We have been redeemed. We have been set apart. And uh, we, we trust what the Word tells us about ourselves, Right. So uh, that's a good comment. Anybody else? Any other comments? Are you going to say something, Dwayne? Yes. Okay. Um, (laughs) When we visited China, we found that much, many of the believers came to know the Lord through the spoken word, not necessarily the printed word. And they love the printed Word of God, and we were fortunate to be a part of delivering 1,700 full Bibles to to the people, rural people of China, and they grasped it just like it was a newborn baby or something. And it, but when we got to
1: understanding it better, we realized that they would take that back to their village, and and uh, literally. Take the Bible apart to give
0: to family and other people to read, sharing the Word even that way. So it was amazing. Yep. Yeah. If you've seen pictures of Af- the people in Africa that are given their first copy of the Word, and they and they cry and they dance around it, they just have a great uh, just a love for it. And we might have five or six laying around the house, and I hope none of them have dust on them. So, uh, there's a there's a uh, there's a great difference between uh, the reverence people have for their words in different countries. Good good responses. Anybody else? Anybody else? Well, let's pray, and then uh, we'll let you go into Zoom rooms and prepare for uh, the message uh, from Terry at 11 o'clock. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have called us. I thank you that it's an irresistible call from the King of Kings. It's a summons that is... Uh, internal and it is to us. I thank you that you have set us apart to be holy. Help us to be faithful and obedient and help our lives be characterized by holiness. And I thank you that we will be made more and more holy through your word, which purifies us. I thank you that we have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. And I thank you that you have foreordained this and you planned this and that you have put us as be recipients of your good graces. Help us to live our lives faithfully, knowing that we will be judged by what we do and the motivation behind what we do. Help us to be faithful. Help us to live our time here on this planet in with a reverential fear of you and an awe of you and a thankfulness and a desire to please you in all that we do. And we thank you for your word. It purifies us, that is not corruptible, and that changes us, and it results in love for you and love for our brothers. Help us to be faithful in these days in which we live. We thank you for your gospel, which is your spoken word that changes our hearts. We thank you for our preacher, Terry. and We pray that you would bless the word. Uh, We trust your word will accomplish your purposes and will not return into you void. We pray that you would plant it deep within each one of us as we listen intently. We thank you for mercy. We thank you for grace. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.